Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. We've got a special guest who's uh, put out a book called First on the Moon. It's Apollo 11 50th anniversary experience. Rod Pyle, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, and yes, we went. Are you sure? <laughs> nice to talk to you. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure. You know, I, I do a lot of late night AM. So uh, besides yeah. coast to coast, I do WGN yeah. in Chicago and some other stations. And you get a lot of calls in the second hour from you know people driving cross country or or what have you. And that question comes up a lot. You know, it's like, well, I, I don't believe that we did that. And I used to go into this little sermon about, look, you know, before we're going to have this conversation, just go do some of the things that I've done for these books. You know, go to the Kennedy Space Center and to Houston, to the Johnson Space Center Museum, and look at the rockets. They're the most expensive museum exhibits in history. They're $500, $600 million a copy. We didn't fly the last three Apollo missions. The rockets and the command modules and the lunar modules are sitting there. Go look at it. Touch it. You know, get a real good look at that machinery and tell me you think that that was all a con job. Then go to the archives where there's hundreds of thousands of feet of film, millions of sheets of paper, photographs, documents, riffle through that stuff. And then finally, 
sit down with the moonwalkers, I've done with about five of them, and have a conversation. And, you know, when those guys walk in the room, it kind of sucks the air out of the room and things change. Or go talk to Gene Kranz, the flight director. And if you're still not convinced, then we have to have another conversation. And that conversation is going to be about two things. One, the Soviet Union, when we went to the moon in 1968, 1969 through 72, we flew those missions up there. Radio transmissions are coming back from the Apollo Command Module and Lunar Module to Houston and Mission Control, right? You don't think the Soviet Union was listening in? After the fall of the Soviet Union, those records were opened up, and they said, of course we were listening. We want to know what you guys are doing because we were trying to get to the moon too. So they tracked those flights. Finally, uh, the Japanese and the Chinese, the site, I mean, NASA's had, had orbiters around the moon that have imaged the Apollo landing sites, but of course there are people who will say, well, it's Photoshop, it's a conspiracy. Okay. <laughs> are you telling me if the Chinese saw that we had never landed there, they wouldn't call us out in about 30 seconds? I think not. So that, for me, was the, the final deal. You know, if anybody had doubts, just go, go talk to them. And they'll tell you, yeah, the Americans went there, but we're going to go next. That's, that's how they'd probably end the conversation, the Chinese government. We're going to be there next, and by the time you get there again, we're going to have a whole city built. But we'll see. <laughs> well, it gets to me because we have, uh, on, when, on, on the Wednesday shows, we always have Dr. Joe who does uh, conspiracy, and he's the debunker. And uh, we get at least 100 messages after the show calling us uh, <laughs> government agents or shills or people that, yeah. you know, we're in on it. And it's, you and your uh, dark sunglasses and your black suits and your Chevy Tahoes, right? Yeah, I'm still, I'm still waiting for the check. You know, oh, how is that? Yeah. It, it, but, you know, um, I have to say way back, not in a while, I had to do a show in Phoenix for KFNX. And that was the, one of the first stations, and they wanted me to do the Flat Earthers. So I had Mark Sargent, and he's he, his, yeah, and his claim was that uh, Russia and, and the U.S. is is in on it together. They they never even tried to make it to the moon. Were actually covered by a dome, and they were trying to figure out how to get out of the dome. That's because we saying. were such good friends back in the sixties. <laughs> You know, I mean, so you're in a dome and the nuclear weapons start flying. What happens? Oh, you blow the dome up. That's not going to work. Well, that's, you know, you got to give them credit for being clever yeah. on kind of a basic level. What I find fascinating about this is the compulsion to, to latch on to conspiracy theories. There's something very sexy about conspiracy theories. And there's absolutely no qualification to being an expert in conspiracy theories conspiracy theories except wanting to be whereas if you're actually going to be a scientist you got to go to school you learn it it's hard i tried it i didn't make the cut which is why i went into the the media side because it was still a way to feed my fascination without having to go take differential equations for the third time and um what i find now 50 years on from the lunar landings i look back and I, I can kind of understand. So the whole conspiracy thing has actually gone up in the last few years because a new generation, millennials and Xers, are looking at this saying, yeah, I'm not, not, not too convinced. And then some of these major sports figures come out and say, yeah, we never went to the moon. I don't think we went. And, of course, because of popular media, kids latch onto that, young people, and, and go, well, yeah, maybe that's true. And it's a shame, but I have to kind of say I understand a little bit of their thoughts because – I, you know, I grew up during Apollo. 
I saw those things when they were happening. I've looked at those machines. I've met the astronauts. I've talked to the engineers and technicians and mission control guys. And I look back 50 years out at what happened with that 1960 technology, and I can barely believe we did it because we were flying out right at the edge of what this machinery could do. It's phenomenal. And we're trying to do it again, and it's proving to be very challenging. And so, you know, the the thing that only the U.S. was able to do is proving to be very hard to duplicate. So it was a magnificent achievement, but I I think we did it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just I I don't know. I I just drives me nuts. Um, <laughs> well, when, when you know, why did we stop going to the moon? Like, um, you know, we were going for quite a while, and then that's it. Was there a particular yeah. reason or? Well, I think the reason is sort of rooted in why we went in a weird way. So Kennedy says 1961 and then again in 62 at Rice University, we're going to the moon. I want it by the end of the decade, get it done. And, you know, the, the, the Democrats in Congress clapped and looked at each other like, wow, is he serious? And the Republicans clapped a little less and looked at each other and said, wow, is he serious? And the guys at NASA, which was only a couple of years old at that point, remember when he announced this, we had a grand total of 15 minutes in space with Alan Shepard, who didn't even go into orbit. And now Kennedy's saying we're going to the moon. And the guys at NASA are looking at each other saying, wow, is he serious? We don't even know what questions to ask, much less what to do. But, you know, it was a time of, of geopolitical struggle. Kennedy wasn't a big fan of the space program right up front, but he knew we had to prove that we were as good as or better than the Soviet Union, who was beating our pants off in space. So he asked his advisors, and they said, you know, they could probably do a space station before us, they could probably loop the moon before us, but if we do, if we go for a landing and a return, that's hard enough that we think we can we can do that. So that was the impetus. Then in 63, Kennedy's assassinated, so the, the Apollo program, Gemini program, Apollo program, march on. There were a number of people in Congress, the Senate, who wanted it stopped. But, you know, this is a political hot potato. You're not going to cancel the martyred president's space program. So there's a lot of very smart people who think that that's one of the reasons that it succeeded. Well, by 1968, we've got Richard Nixon coming into office, and he's inheriting this democratic space program. So he certainly made great hay when the moon landing succeeded. He was... If, if you were old enough to remember this, he jumped on the phone and got on the split screen on, on the three major news networks and talked to Neil and Buzz on the moon and burned up many millions of dollars of expensive moon time minutes chatting with the astronauts because it was a great political moment for him. But he really was not a fan. So by the time we were halfway through the Apollo program, he had already canceled Apollo 18, 19, and 20, and the hardware had been built. You know, those rockets are the ones that are sitting in museums I was talking about. He canceled those and said, nah, we're going to spend a lot less on space. And NASA tells me they can build this reusable space space plane that will fly every week. and It'll be great. And the idea was the shuttle would basically launch, do its thing, land. You'd hose it off and clean out the ashtrays and launch again. And it didn't turn out to be like that. It was much more complicated. The technology was really not up to the task at that point. And, um, again, Nixon kept cutting the budget, so the shuttle that did fly was a very uh, compromised design. So to get back specifically to your question, 
I think we took our eye off the ball because there are people, and even Obama said this, there are people that, that felt, you know, we've been to the moon, we've seen it, there's nothing there but, but rocks and, and vacuum, and why should we go back? And so there was not support in Congress, there was not tremendous amount of popular support, although NASA's brand has really been pretty consistent throughout the years of, of the space race and since then. So it's really more about the political political machine than it is about popular support. There just wasn't enough of a motivation. Now, if we had found, you know, thousands of tons of emeralds on the moon or unobtainium that we could bring back to Earth and it would power batteries per, indefinitely or something, that would be a different story. But we didn't find anything that works for the American psyche, which is usually a profit motivation. And so that was the problem, and that's, I think, why it spiraled down. However, in this new space age we're entering, and if you saw the launch of the Falcon Heavy, I think that's that was the kickoff. It's been happening for a while, but that was really the big public moment. If this crazy millionaire, billionaire, excuse me, can launch his his used red Tesla Roadster into orbit just to show that he can, <laughs> this is truly a new era. The difference now is you've got these billionaires who are building rockets because they're tired of waiting. You've got uh, China and, and India, who are really advancing their space programs very steadily and, and fairly quickly, and you've got this um, this new impetus with NASA to try and get it together and get human spaceflight out of out of Earth orbit. But at the center of all this is a profit motivation because there there are ways to make money out there. It just takes investment, and a lot of money is being poured in, not just from government, from the private sector. So I think that's what's going to make the difference this time is there's money to be made. Yeah, it's always about money, isn't it? Um, and and I will say, well, in the 60s, it was a great pressure to beat Russia, and there's not that big pressure now, is there? Well, there's not, although it was interesting when Vice President Pence – uh, gave his his uh, his press conference what about six weeks ago now maybe two months you know the afternoon before we were going to head back to the moon with American astronauts by 2028 and then that press conference came mid morning and the next thing we knew we were headed back to the moon by 2024 and it was kind of a surprise and this is part of the Trump administration's push probably to get it done by the end of what he hopes is the second term but. Also, there's a legitimate notion of, look, let, let's pick up the pace here for a couple of reasons. One, NASA's kind of been, in, in the mind of a lot of people, dawdling with the space launch system and the Orion capsule. It's only flown once unmanned, and the SLS didn't even fly, just the capsule. And they're continuously behind schedule. Let's get going. It only took five years to build the Saturn V. What's, what's the hang-up? But also, in that same speech, he mentioned, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he mentioned we've got adversaries in space coming up, which are Russia and China. And a lot of people on my end of things, on the media side, were looking at this kind of scratching their heads thinking, China, yeah, but Russia? I mean, yes, they're flying us back and forth to the space station. We buy seats from them at a very high cost. Uh, it started at $36 million a seat. Now it's about 85 because they can charge whatever they want because we can't get to our space station without them. But we're probably paying for most of the cost of, of flying one of those Soyuz rockets up there. And ironically, the Soyuz capsule that we fly to our space station in was the one that was built to try and beat us to the moon back in the 60s. So a little point of irony there. But when we stop buying rides to the Russians, I suspect, from what I know about their program, that it's probably going to 
going to slow down a lot. I don't think they've got a big human f- spaceflight program plan. They keep talking about it, but the money and the commitment isn't there. So it's really going to be us versus China. So is China a worthy adversary like the Soviet Union was? In a different way, maybe. You know, there's a lot of concern about their military aspirations in space, and there's growing concern about the resource base on the moon because there's a lot of water, apparently, on the South Pole, we're pretty sure, frozen in ice down in these deep, permanently shadowed craters. And people say, well, we got water on Earth. Why do you have to go to the moon to get it? Well, we're not getting it to bring it back to Earth. We're getting it to use in space because it costs about uh, eight to $10,000 to launch a single gallon of water into orbit. That's expensive. But if you've got it up on the moon, if you're going to go do things on the moon, um, it's really handy to have water there because you can make breathable oxygen out of it. You can drink it. You can make it in a rocket fuel, which is really useful. So rather than having to keep hauling tons of fuel up so you can go beyond Earth orbit and go to exciting places like the moon and Mars and beyond, you can just go to the moon, refine the water that's there, and use that for high-energy rocket fuel. And now the solar system is your playground. Hmm. Well, you know, I, one of the things about the uh, Apollo landing, uh, how did they decide where they were going to land and how would they how would they be able to tell what they were landing on as we hadn't been there yeah it's an interesting conversation it's something i cover in the book in a fair amount of detail because it was really a white knuckler in a number of ways so prior to the first apollo landing which was july 20th 1969 famously um there were some concerns about what we we're going to find the lunar surface we had seen it through telescopes for decades hundreds of years actually um, we had had lunar orbiting robots, both the United States and the Soviet Union, taking pictures, so we knew what it looked like from a few dozen miles up. And we had landed, both the Soviets and the Americans had landed robotic landers there and tested the soil and looked around. And that was a relief because there was at least one scientist, a guy named Thomas Gold out of Cornell University, who was a consultant to NASA, who had said, you know, I think that it's been bombarded by micrometeorites for so long over these billion of years that there's going to be about 20 or 30 feet of dust there, and that lunar module is going to go down and disappear. <laughs> Bye-bye astronauts. So having the surveyors land there and say, nope, tapping my foot, it's a nice hard rock, I've got my little my little sampling scoop, and I'm going to shove the, the soil around. So it's, you know, it's just like being in Barstow, California. It's just like desert rock. And I went, okay. So we know we can land there. So the next question was where to go. So for the early missions, like Apollo 11, Apollo 12, they just wanted something relatively flat and smooth and safe. And there's always this tension. I work at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is the NASA field center in, in Southern California off and on. And, um, you know, if you're sitting in, they have these conferences where they try and decide where to land the next Mars rovers. And it's kind of fun to be there because you've got the engineers on one side saying, just go somewhere flat, okay? Give me something safe. Then you got the geologists going, well, we want somewhere where there's been water activity and there's interesting rocks to look at and lots of formations, which, of course, rumple up the ground, so that's dangerous. Then you've got the life science people, the astrobiologists, saying, take us somewhere where we might find some critters or some fossils of critters. So there's this tension between these three groups. We weren't look, looking for life on the moon, but we were looking for interesting science returns, particularly for the geologists. So for the first few missions, it was just land somewhere safe and come home, bring some rocks. 
And then as the program progressed, the landings got more and more challenging and the terrain got more and more interesting. But for Apollo 11 in particular, they were just looking for a flat spot. And as it turned out, with that first landing, they almost didn't find it. Uh, they had orbital maps, and they had pictures taken from the Apollo 8 and Apollo 10 astronauts who had orbited the moon, but nobody had landed there yet. And as you know, if you've ever taken a jet airplane flight, things look really different from altitude than they do down on the ground. So it was really touch and go there on that first landing. Yeah, and what they had really, really primitive computer equipment as well. So they didn't have a whole lot of um, backup, as you would say, you know? Yeah, you know, part of the problem with space is you're moving in three dimensions. So we're used to navigating on roads and oceans, but when you, when you have that third dimension to worry about, and there's no GPS out there, you have to have an inertial guidance system, and you have to have certain guide stars you can sight and enter the coordinates of your computer. And that's what lets the computer know where it is in three-dimensional space. And at that time, this is the early 60s now, they're, they're designing their moonships. They knew they needed an advanced computer system, so NASA very smartly bypassed IBM. And there's nothing wrong with IBM, but they were building computers that took up entire rooms at that point. They went to MIT, to their instrument laboratory there, and said, we need to shrink that room full of computers into something the size of a briefcase. But we don't really know what we need it to do. I was just reading about this this morning. And the MIT guys said, well, okay. <laughs> you know, they're academics. Yeah, okay. And within a couple of years, they realized that they had bitten off a very tough chew. This was not, this is not a banana. This was like eating shoe leather. You know, this is going to be a tough, tough project. And they barely made it. The two items that really slowed down Apollo and almost scotched the whole thing before the end of the decade were the lunar module, which was a really huge engineering challenge, and the computer. But they did manage to shove all that stuff into a little tiny box with some fairly exotic for the time technology and really, really simple but very robust programming. And remember, this computer had 36K of the kind of memory we would think of today. And so it's about powerful enough, literally powerful enough to power your toaster oven. And all of NASA, and in fact, according to Alan Stern, the guy who uh, runs, runs the New Horizon mission, who's a very respected scientist, um, I was at a conference with him recently, and I had made the quote, your your cell phone today has more smarts than all the NASA did in the 1960s. I said, actually, I just calculated that the other day. Your cell phone, your iPhone in your pocket there has more computing power than the whole planet did in the 1960s. <laughs> so, yeah, it's amazing that this computer worked. There were some issues, however, as they were landing on the moon, that first landing, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, Apollo 11, they're heading down out of lunar orbit, and they're getting closer and closer to the surface. And, of course, their computer is doing its thing. It's got downward-facing radar, and it's counting off range to the surface and velocity and uh, you know all the numbers they needed to know to get down there safely because the computer is flying the lunar module at that point. And then suddenly it just stops, and this, these four numbers pop up on the display, 1202 and then later 1201. But there's, there's no the, – the other readings aren't coming in. It looks like it's crashed. Well, mission rules say if the computer crashes, you got to abort and come home, which is a fairly dangerous thing to do, but more dangerous to land without a computer. So they radio down to mission control, hey, uh, the computer's displaying this number. What the hell does it mean? And in mission control, these guys are looking at each other saying, does anybody know what 1202 means? And it was not something they'd simulated much. They had, they'd done it a couple of times 
weeks or months before, but it wasn't something people paid a lot of attention to because nobody thought it could happen because it was such a robust system. Fortunately, there was a guy in the back room who, uh, so they have back rooms to support mission control. So it's a bunch of extra engineers that are, you know, backing up the guys on the consoles of mission control. One of those back room guys said, you know what? I made a crib sheet of this and I know exactly what it is. It's called an executive overflow error. Don't worry about it. So basically it was a code inserted by the computer by a very smart woman named Margaret Hamilton at MIT, one of the first female software engineers. And that code said, if you get too much data, don't stop. Just disregard the things that aren't important and keep doing the things that are important, like landing this lunar module. So the thing reset itself and kept going, and we made it. But, boy, it was by the, by the hair of our teeth. Wow. You know, it's, it's, and, and getting back was just as hard. Um, weren't they on kind of a real time, uh, time issue as well? On those first flights, they were. The first couple of lunar modules weren't designed to stay down there for more than about 30 hours. So they had to get there, settle in, make sure everything was fine, get their suits on, get out of the lunar module. And in Apollo 11's case, they only had about two and a half hours of expiration time. And then they got back in and lift off before they ran out of supplies. Now, they did have a, a fair amount of padding, but had something gone wrong, within another 10 or 15 hours, you're out of oxygen and it's bye-bye astronauts. And a lot of things had to happen for them to leave. So the lunar module is two stages. The bottom half is the descent stage. The top half is the ascent stage. Of course, the astronauts are in the ascent stage. That's the pressurized part. So by the time you've landed, the descent stage is done. You shut it down. You're never using it again. That's your launch pad from the moon. To leave the moon... Um, First of all, you have to you have to arm the system, and then you punch the go button, and a couple of valves have to uh, open up on the ascent engine. And these were controlled by little pyrotechnic charges, but they needed electrical charges to make them fire. There were no manual overrides because the lunar module was was so close on weight limits that they they just couldn't afford the weight for any of this. So if those things didn't fire, you wouldn't leave. So assuming the engine fires, then you have to separate from the bottom half. Well, there's explosive bolts binding these two halves together, and electric charges have to make those explosive bolts split open so that the two halves can detach. If those don't work, or even if one of them doesn't work, you're not leaving, right? You've got one explosive bolt left, and the top half lunar module flips on its side, and bye-bye astronauts. But there's one more thing. They had wire traveling between the top stage and the bottom stage, this four-inch wide bundle of wire, because you don't want to have plugs that shake loose during launch. Um, so they ran each wire that had to go from the top stage to bottom stage ran all the way through. So you've got this solid loom of wire between these two stages, and that has to disconnect. So the way they did that, which is very elegant, is they had a guillotine with explosive charges. So it would go kabang, and it would cut that wire bundle. So all those things had to happen within milliseconds of each other. If any one of them didn't, you have a single point of failure, and as I keep saying, bye-bye astronauts. <laughs> to make it all even more interesting, as Neil Armstrong was leaving the lunar module for his moonwalk, his backpack bumped up against a switch and snapped it off. And, of course, they didn't hear it because they are in a vacuum at that point. So they go do their moonwalk and come back, and one of them looks down and says, what's this? There's this little plastic stub on the floor of the lunar module. And they realize that they've broken a switch, and they look up on the panel which one do you think it was? It was the arming switch for the takeoff engine. And they went, uh, hey, Houston, guess what? 
we we broke the go button. So for the next few hours, while the astronauts were taking a nap to be refreshed for their for their launch, because it's complicated, uh, Houston's trying to figure out how the heck they're going to work around this breaker switch. But at the last minute, when it was time to to figure out what to do, they're getting ready to go, and Buzz Aldrin, being Buzz Aldrin, because he's a brilliant guy, looks at it, takes a felt tip, literally takes a felt tip Sharpie pen out of his pocket, jams it in the switch, and resets it. So crisis averted for 39 cents and $1969, and off they went. So, yeah, it was tough. And then once you got off the ground, off the, the lunar surface, that same computer had to guide you back to the command module, which is up in orbit where Mike Collins is waiting, and you've got a rendezvous and dock. Now, had they not gotten up into a full-altitude orbit, Collins would have been able to dip down to, he was orbiting at 62 miles, I think he could go down to about 10 miles. He could have gone down to rescue them if they could have gotten off the surface, but if the thing hadn't launched, that was the end of it. Now, now they, they got a number of um, samples from the moon, space rocks and, mm-hmm. and, and things. Um, one of the things that, well, you know, conspiracies also pull on this, but I, um, one of the things I found interesting is, is, is the fake ones that were found. Fake ones that were found? In, in uh, different countries that we had given them to. Well, so when the, the total from the Apollo program was, I think, something around 850 pounds of moon rocks and soil brought back. So a lot of that stuff was lent out to various museums, both nationally and internationally. A small amount of it was lost. Um, there were, and still are, uh, facsimiles of lunar rock and soil that you can get if you have a museum. So it's pretty hard to get a moon rock. You know, you got to rate pretty high on their list to get a moon rock because they're, how do you put a price on it? But they can't be owned by anybody but NASA, so, of course, that's where they're staying. Um, there were reproductions made, but as far as I know, there were no fake ones found on the moon. They're just found down here. No, no, but I mean that we had given the rocks to um, different countries and um, and uh, to, to put in museums or whatever. And uh, one in the Amsterdam Museum, it was the Dutch National Museum, um, when they um, sam- they had the rock there on display, uh-huh. and it was just petrified wood. I never heard that. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah NBC, uh, you know, because who, who I work for, um, they're the ones that give me the story, and I've read it through. And huh. and, I, and I guess what happened was, um, you know, they, they were brought back, and then they were given to different museums, and these guys did it. And then um, years later, when they... Um, did some sort of when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door go to blue and use promo code listen to get 50 dollars off your purchase of 500 dollars or more that's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The sampling or studying on it, they found out it was petrified wood. Well, you know, moon rocks aren't all that amazing to look at. I mean, they're amazing because of what they are. But they're not particularly amazing from what they're made of. Most of them are breccia, which is or uh, either basalt or breccia, volcanic rock, basalt. Breccia is kind of reconglomerated volcanic rock. So they're you know they're interesting, but they're just this gray kind of char- looks like a charcoal briquette that's been broken in half. And um, <laughs> you know, so it's not hard to fake that if you go out and look for the equivalent rock on Earth. What's interesting to me is. You can you can go to meteorite. I have a good friend who's the president of the National Space Society. I edit their magazine, and um, he he is a meteorite broker. That's what he does for a living. And you can type meteorites when you get them. So generally, you know, they're more stone or they're more metal and all this. But you can also, by doing an analysis of them, figure out whether they came from an asteroid or whether they were a chunk of the moon or Mars that was knocked off and made its way to Earth. And those aren't, aren't as uncommon as you might think. So while it's really sexy to have a moon rock that was picked up by Apollo, if you don't mind getting one second hand that, that landed on Earth, it could have been wandering in space for, for you know a million years, but they do eventually land on Earth, some of them. And you can tell it by typing it. Is you can actually have a moon rock in your hand for you know a couple hundred dollars. Wow. Uh, yeah, but I don't want a used one. <laughs> well, and there you go. You want one of those fresh Apollo ones. Um, and they're pretty, you know, they're like I said, you can't get them now. But if, if Jeff Bezos has his way, he came out right about the time that Pence said, we're going back to the moon by 2024. Well, that's a nice idea. But you know what? We've got a rocket we haven't finished. The space capsule's almost done. Orion's doing well. The space launch system's not, not there yet. We don't have a lander. And, you know, it, it's, it's hard to build them. We don't have lunar modules anymore. Well, as it turned out, Jeff Bezos has been working on one for three years with his own money. And it's pretty far along. And it's a great big monster. And it's designed at this point just for carrying cargo, but with larger fuel tanks, he says, and the engineers agree, that it could carry humans down to the lunar surface, you know, whenever you're ready, NASA. And Bezos, you know, you talk about Elon Musk and Bezos. They're both amazing guys. Musk started SpaceX, famously, and Bezos runs Blue Origin in addition to Amazon. Musk has put a lot of his own money into SpaceX rockets. He developed the Falcon 9 on his own dime. He spent a lot of money on the Falcon uh, 9. I'm sorry, it was the Falcon Heavy with his own money. Falcon 9 was shared between him and NASA. But Bezos so far has done almost everything uh, with the rockets he's loaned and the, the lunar lander he's designing on his own money because he cashes out a billion dollars of the B of Amazon stock every year, invests it in his rocket hobby. So that's a true believer. And at this rate, he can only do that for another, let me see, 157 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Poor guy's broke. He's giving yeah. all his money, you know, I know, I know. but you know, if you're going to spend your money on something, 
I mean, I admire guys like Bill Gates who, who go out and really try and change the world. And he's done a fantastic job for the kind of things that, that he and Melinda, his wife, are, are concerned about, you know, child welfare and, and poverty and, and hunger and all that. I think Bezos and Musk in their own, in their different ways are doing the same thing in different directions. They're looking up and out and saying, you know, this is important. There's a lot of resources in space that are becoming increasingly scarce on Earth. For instance, rare earth metals, which we at this point get, I think, 90% of from China. And if this trade war heats up, we could really be hurting pretty quickly. There's a lot of those out there in asteroids, but you got to go out and mine them. you got to go find them, and you got to get them. Uh, if you can get solar power satellites up, and then they're large. You know, it's a big deal. It's a big construction project. It's kind of like doing Hoover Dam up in space. But if you can get a big solar panel farm up there, and then beam power back down to Earth. You've got power 24-7 coming down to Earth stations. Now you're weaning yourself on fossil fuel, and we can clean up this planet within a matter of decades. So that's, I think, where their sights are set, and that's pretty exciting. So do you think that we're, we will be um, relocating, so to speak, or moving or getting to a place like the moon and, and um, regular people? We'll be able to travel to the moon. This is going to be common. Uh, eventually, I, I, common's a tough word because it's it's always going to be expensive and hard and dangerous. But um, you know, I think for the next couple of decades, and there are a lot of people who take exception with this who who really believe strongly in the settlement argument. And I think ultimately, settlement of space is inevitable because whether you talk about overcrowding or just the opportunities out there, there's a lot of reasons to do it. But it's. I don't think it's a matter of manifest destiny as much as it's a matter of profit motivations. You know, we'll continue to do expeditions. We've, we've done expeditions to the moon already. We're continuing to do expeditions to Earth orbit now to do research and engineering projects. We'll probably go out to Mars in an expeditionary fashion. We'll go. We'll do our thing. We'll come home. Um, but ultimately, you know, what is it that's going to enable people going to these places to stay? Well, first, we've got to go see what's there and see what we can do with it. Like I think I said earlier, we already know there's water on the moon, and from water you can get rocket fuel and breathable air and drinkable water and so forth. So instead of launching that stuff at the cost of about $10,000 a gallon, now it's right there. So when you start being able to develop resources locally, not only do you have a way to get there and stay and to go beyond on other places because your fuel base is right there, but there's a market. So that stuff has an intrinsic value out there. So it's, it's going to be a lot less than launching it, but it's a lot of money still. So if you store that in Earth orbit or lunar orbit, so I can get up into Earth orbit with my rocket, which is most of the work you do to get into space, once you're in Earth orbit, you tank up from one of these orbital tankers with fuel that's derived from lunar resources, water. Um, now you can go pretty much anywhere in the solar system if you've got enough gas. And if it's Mars... We know that there's a lot of water on Mars, like enough to flood the whole planet to a depth of about 30 feet, but it's all locked up in ice. You melt that, and you reprocess fuel, and now you've got gas to come home. So it's this kind of living off the land thing that I think will make this happen. Specific to your point, I think normal people, quote, normal people, quote, unquote, will go when people like Musk and, and possibly Bezos are able to make it cheap enough that the moderately wealthy can afford to. So like Musk keeps saying $200,000 to Mars, I think it'll cost that much to go to the moon for the next 10 years, but, but I'd love to be proved wrong. But then in terms of the average guy, I think that's a paradigm shift. That's after 
the machines have gone, because the machines will always go first. They go where it's dark and dangerous and scary, and they explore, and intelligent robots can start building the infrastructure. They can build the landing pads and the habitats and so forth, the processing stations, and they prepare the way, and then people go when it makes sense. And that's when I think you start to see real settlement. And then that for a good number of years, there will probably be resorts in orbit and possibly on the moon where the, where the very wealthy go. But I think for a long time, it's going to be like working on oil rig. You know, it's going to be that kind of industrial sort of environment where you go out because there's a job to be done and it's something that people do well. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, well, what about the aliens on the, with their space? <laughs> Um, base on the moon, they can help us out, right? Gee, I thought it was the Nazis. Um, oh, well, they're there too. But yeah. Uh, you know, if if that was true, and there's a part of me that's a little scared of that idea. There, there's a lot of people, very smart science people, that want us to stop sending radio message out trying to contact the aliens because they might be having a bad day and decide that humans are irritating and come put an end to us. But the fact of the matter is we've been sending out I Love Lucy reruns and general hospital soap operas for the last 60 years now, so those signals are on their way. Those guys are going to hear about us whether we want them to or not. So the question is, you know, what what's the medium of exchange and, and what do we have to offer them, or are we just insects in their view? Um, I know you're, you're, you were kind of being glib, but it's an interesting question, and uh, it's going to be fascinating when this happens. And, and I, I say when, not when we get contacted by you know angry aliens that are going to come down and put an end to human civilization. But when we do finally find some form of life elsewhere, which will probably be possibly on Mars slightly more likely on one of the moons of, of Saturn or Jupiter, you know, these, these icy moons, we we're pretty certain have warm oceans below the ice and where you've got a warm ocean and various kind of nutrients and minerals and so forth, there's a reasonable chance that life might've started. If we can discover that this miracle that happened on earth by this weird combination of factors that doesn't seem to happen very often, if it did happen somewhere else, that's a really big conversation not just in science, but in metaphysics and religion and philosophy and a whole bunch of other areas. And I don't know what the effect of that will be. I'd love to think that it brings humanity together. Um, we, we keep thinking that about different things. I mean, there's a moment when we thought that about the Internet, you know. Yeah. But um, <laughs> it, it, I hope I live to see that because that would really be an astounding moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see what happens, you know. But, I mean, if they if they start getting all of our... Uh, entertainment sent to them. They'll, it's like robocalls. They'll <laughs> <laughs> put a stop to that. Yeah, they'll, they'll probably land and say, "Hey, where's my free Ginsu knife?" You know, I saw <laughs> you cutting through that 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 juice can. I want one for myself. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what kind of messages. Uh, if you ever saw Galaxy Quest, the uh, no. the Tim Allen comedy. Basically, right, yeah, they're aliens yeah. that come to Earth and they they're soliciting our help to defend themselves from nastier aliens. Because they saw, it's obviously a, a, a knock on Star Trek, they saw a show that was just like Star Trek and how we're going around defeating aliens and the cosmos and upholding the rule of justice law and all that. And they're coming to Earth saying, hey, help us out. And Tim Allen's saying, look, it's just a show, you know. Um, it could be a scenario like that or they, they could see that. That one I Love Lucy episode that stressed me out so much where she's doing the chocolates on the conveyor belt yeah, and just decide that humans aren't worth keeping around and put us all in a zoo, you know? Who knows? Yeah.
Well, that's pretty close. And <laughs> now, when you were doing this book, I, I see you've um, had a lot of interaction with um, uh, Buzz Aldrin and, and the family and, and Neil Armstrong's family as well. Um, how did they contribute to your book? Well, I, I, Buzz wrote the foreword, obviously, and I've known him for you know, 10 or 15 years. And, you know, we don't hang out and, and clink beer glasses at the local pub, but we've worked together a couple of times. So he, he gave me a lot of information over the years about, besides just his experiences, about his future plans. And of the Apollo astronauts, he's really the only one, and I say this with some caveats, because a number of them were very positive on the idea of continuing to forge ahead and push forward. But Buzz has been the most vocal about it. He has never stopped campaigning for going above and beyond and further and over that next horizon. And he's been very vocal and active about that. Not always to NASA's uh, joy, I will add, that sometimes they, they kind of part company on how they think it ought to be done. But he gave me a lot of background about his ideas for the future, and that's been sprinkled in a couple of books that came out this year. Um, uh, talking to Armstrong's son was more just a matter of kind of refining who his dad was because Neil was not somebody that you got to know very easily. When he left NASA right after Apollo 11, he took, I think, one position within NASA and then decided he didn't want to be an administrator and went to academia. And he went to Ohio State and taught there for the next number of decades, taught engineering. So imagine you're enrolling in engineering 1B, you walk into class and hey, this professor looks kind of familiar. He's that guy that walked on the moon. I mean, how cool would that be? But he didn't give interviews, and he he very rarely gave them at any rate. Jim Hansen got them for his book, First Man. But I think what I got from his son was, you know, the Neil Armstrong we saw in the movie First Man is not the Neil Armstrong that other people knew. The Neil Armstrong in First Man, Ryan Gosling, was taciturn, depressed, and torn to shreds over the death of his daughter, and I'm sure that was a very difficult time. But when you talk to people who knew Neil, that's not the person they knew. They knew somebody that had a very wry sense of humor and a twinkle in his eye, an incredibly curious mind. And if you just listen to the downlink from the moonwalk, Neil's having a, a blast. He's very upbeat. He's running from task to task, and he's fascinated by things he's seeing. So that was important to talk to his son to get a sense of that. Andy Aldrin... The, the best thing I got from him, I mean, it was a wonderful conversation. And I've known Andy for a number of years. We serve on a board together, so we've kind of become friendly. And I said, you know, is there any, so I do the interview for about an hour, and then as you always do with these things, you say, is there anything you want to add? And usually the person you're interviewing says, nah, that's about it. And he said, yeah, I want to tell you something I've never told a writer. You want to hear it? <laughs> yeah, duh, right? And he says, when my dad was walking on the moon, I wasn't scared he was going to die because I trusted NASA was the best. I wasn't scared that his oxygen was going to run out because I knew that NASA would cover that. I wasn't scared they weren't going to get home because the lunar module was going to fail because I knew that NASA had tested everything to the nth degree. He said what I was scared of, I was looking at that cable that went between the lunar module and the TV camera, and it was all coiled up. It wasn't laying flat on the surface because it had been stored in a coil. He said, I was scared to death my dad was going to trip over that and embarrass me in front of my classmates at school. <laughs> and I thought, man, teenage boys are the same everywhere, you know? Yeah. So that was that was a lot of fun. That was an interesting piece of insight in the lives of astronauts. But one thing they both told me was, growing up in the Houston suburbs of Clear Lake and 
those other neighborhoods around the Johnson Space Center, you know, they, they thought they were like anybody else. It wasn't really a big deal to have dads that were going off to the moon or flying in orbit in Gemini or working in mission control because everybody was. And they played football and practical jokes and the kind of stuff that all other kids do. It was later that they both said they realized how different and, and truly amazing this all was. What do you, did you get any surprises when you were doing this book, putting it together and going through all the archives and memorabilia and stuff? Did you come across stuff that really kind of shocked you? No shocks. You know, I've, I've been writing about Apollo since 2000, really since the 90s for TV, but, but for books since 2003. So I've been through this story a number of times. I think, though, one thing that was a real pleasure was there was a, a new release of images online in 2015, I think it was. So NASA's had all the images that were taken on the moon. These were all shot on film, mostly two-and-a-quarter-inch film on Hasselblad cameras, sitting in the archives for 50 years. But if you want to see most of it, you had to go to the archives in College Park, Maryland, dig through these musty old boxes to find the stuff, and it's expensive, and you got to make an appointment and you know, wear your white gloves and all that. So it's kind of a, a hassle. And, you know, as authors, 20 years ago, we had to go in the library and pull out those three-foot-long drawers and riffle through file cards to find books. Now most of that stuff's in the Internet. And it's the same with the NASA archives. Most of that stuff's in the Internet. So there's a big release of images in 2015. And you can see why they didn't bother to do it sooner, because they picked the best stuff to release after the mission. So the shot of the Earth on Apollo 8 and the shot of Buzz Aldrin standing on the moon and the astronauts saluting the flag and so forth during those missions. A lot of the other stuff is an accidental shutter release when it's pointed at his foot or just a shot of the horizon with nobody else in it. It's just this flat moonscape. But what you can do with a lot of those and, and hadn't been available to us before unless you went to the archives, because we have now things like Photoshop, you can take those images in series, so there might be 10 or 15 of them sometimes, and put together a panorama. So I think that was the fun part. I hired a, a guy I know named Emil Petrenik, who's a very gifted digital artist, and said, can you do assemble some of these in panoramas for me? Because they're not available widely. And he said, sure. So he pasted these things together and smoothed the edges and so forth. So we got these big oversized photos of lunar landscapes, the inside of the lunar module with buzz at the controls and so forth that had been sitting in the archives all those years. Other people had done the same things. I just wanted to do, a, do them again and do them right. And so a number of those are in the book. And I think that was the high point for me, that and interviewing the, the two sons. Yeah, I could imagine. Um, pr pr pretty, uh, pretty amazing feat all the way through. Um, so, so where do you go next? What are you going to be working on next? Well, I, I edit a magazine called Ad Astra for the National Space Society, and that, that takes about half my time. We just did this really wonderful Apollo 50th anniversary edition. So normally it's about 60 pages, and it's a good magazine. Um, I really enjoy doing it. But this was 100 pages and slick cover, and it was all Apollo all the time. So I was just like a pig in a mud bath, you know. <laughs> this was like, this is my thing. I didn't write it all. I wrote a number of articles, but I, I got my best writers together and said, okay, let's not just do another chronology of Apollo. We've done that a hundred times. I've written books like that. Let's do the interesting stories we don't hear enough about. So what was the difference between the, the uh, early Apollo command module that was the victim of the Apollo 1 fire and the later command modules? How do we determine where we're going to land? Um, 
you know, a bunch of, of stories, you know, talking to the to the kids, included that in there. I even put in a, an augmented reality feature so that you can point your, your phone or your tablet at the magazine page and the Saturn V pops up in 3D. So that was really fun. That keeps me busy. And then I've got a couple more books planned, but uh, I'm working on them slow because I did four books came out this year and it was a real foot race last year and I was pretty whipped by the time Christmas came around. So I think this year I'm going to concentrate just on really diving deep into one and trying to get that right and keeping the magazine going and talking to nice people like you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, and of course you've got a website and I've got that linked up on our site. Oh, thank you. The book as well. Um, I'm glad it's doing well because I've, I've sort of been in a uh, kind of a depressed mood thinking that um, so because so, so many people seem to be um, you know getting away from science and mm. that it's kind of a death of expertise in a sense you know and it's sort of yeah alarming to me so I'm glad that there's a, a, a number of people that are actually buying the book and it's it's sold out printing and stuff people are at least i was stunned i you know i i had a moon book that sold a lot of copies in 2010 but between then and now you know they all do well but they don't they don't break any records it's not danielle Steele or somebody selling millions yeah. of copies <laughs> but uh the the apollo book sold out in the first few hours and i thought wait what <laughs> you're doing yeah. another printing so that was a real thrill and there's a lot of them. I mean, there's probably going to be 30 books on the market by the time the July anniversary rolls around. And they're all pretty good. And, you know, we're we're all at least publicly saying to each other, boy, good for you, you know. But yeah. by September, October, you're going to start seeing these things in the remainder bin. And that kind of addresses what you're talking about with this sort of scientific malaise. And yet, when I go talk to groups of young people or for instance i'm going to a conference in dc next week called the international space development conference i go every year it's something the national space society puts on uh we'll probably have 1100 people there 500 of them are going to be students but most of them are coming from india and europe Mm. what does that tell you well it's great for them (laughs) but yeah it's a little disturbing that there aren't more domestic students so that's where we really need to redouble our efforts on STEM and STEAM and getting kids engaged in this. And it's funny because you go to Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where I work sometimes, or Johnson Space Center, Kennedy. You talk to the engineers and the scientists there, and there's a pretty even split between Star Trek, Star Wars. You know, if you want to start a food fight in the cafe, just say, okay, which one's stupid? And you can get those guys in each other's throats. But the third thing that affected so many of them was the Apollo program, and in many cases, the shuttle. And, uh, you know, I think we could use some of that inspiration right now. So we need, A, a few really good science fiction movies to come out and go into franchise and get people revved up. And, B, we need some major accomplishments in space with human beings that get people inspired. So I'm hoping that's what this new pivot towards the moon is going to be. We'll see. Yeah, I hope so, too. You know, it's um, it's quite an achievement, and, and we need to be more on board with it and moving it forward, not um, taking it apart. Well, that's, you know, the we is the interesting part because where where it needs to happen now is Congress. So so the administration said what they want. NASA said, okay, can do. Here's how much more money we need. And it wasn't much. It was a couple billion above their existing $20 billion budget. That sounds like a lot. But when you realize 
that you know the F thirty five program has has so far cost north of four hundred billion dollars. Going back to the moon doesn't sound so expensive, especially when you consider the the ancillary benefits. You know, we it's estimated conservatively that from the Apollo years, for every dollar put in, we got fourteen dollars worth of benefits and all kinds of advances in medicine, integrated circuits. Our smartphones are descended from the lunar module and command module computers. Uh, kidney dialysis came from that program, so on and on and on. The benefits are indirectly huge, and it's hard to keep that conversation going because you keep hearing people saying, well, we don't spend that money on poverty on Earth and so forth. And yes, we should spend money on that, but I'd rather take it out of the F-35 cost overruns, which are monstrous, then deny us the chance to have a space program that really innovates and benefits people directly every day. And so that's one of the reasons that I started editing the National Space Society's magazine, because that's what that group is all about, and that's what they promote and push. And I said, okay, I'm I'm with that agenda, let's go. And so that's that's one of the other activities I do is try and push that forward. Yeah, yeah, need it. Well... Thank you very much for taking the time to uh, join us today. Um, our guest has been Rod Pyle, and the book we're talking about is First on the Moon, the Apollo 11 50th Anniversary Experience. Thanks. Thank you so much. I hope we do it again. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, all shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.